Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, November 5th, 2021. It was on this day in 1942 that Yankee Doodle Dandy, George M. Cohan, the actor, writer, producer, director, and composer, died. He is perhaps best well known for the song Yankee Doodle Dandy and Over There and Your Grand Old Flag. And, of course, the movie Yankee Doodle Dandy starring James Cagney, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Actor, portrayed him in the films. It was also in this day in 1962... It was also this day in 1862 that Abraham Lincoln decided to relieve George B. McClellan of the command of the Army of the Potomac. On this day in 1821, the Savannah, the first steamship to cross the Atlantic, was pounded to splinters on the shore of the Long Island during a storm. And it was on this day in 1414 that the Council of Constance opened to try and solve the crisis of the Great Western Schism. And I decided to go backwards on the various things that happened on this day to end on the anniversary today of the Council of Constance opening because I want to speak to something that a lot of people are very concerned about. And especially when you talk to uber-liberals or uber-conservatives, usually, usually very uh, uh, very conservative Catholics, they're constantly talking about the church in crisis, abuses in the church and the problems in the church. And a lot of it has to do with Pope Francis. Now, this kind of came up again last week when the President of the United States, Joe Biden, visited Pope Francis, and everyone waited with bated breath to hear what either one was going to say after the meeting, and of course, Joe Biden came out and said, oh, the Pope told me I'm doing such a great job and keep on receiving communion, and of course, the people who are true to the Catholic faith and Catholic moral teaching uh, were pretty upset that the Pope did not speak to him, or at least, according to the president, the Pope did not speak to him over the issue of his support for abortion, the president's support for abortion. People would come to me and they would say, oh, what do you think, Father? The president came out and said that the Pope told him to keep refusing communion. I said, well, what do you expect the president to say? I, I'm surprised he didn't say that the Pope told him that he had started the early canonization process for President Joe Biden. What else is Joe Biden going to say? What else is any politician going to say? They're not going to come out and say that anyone, let alone the Pope, called them on the carpet, even though they may have. So I tell people, don't even listen to what the president or any politician, any person in public office might say in representing the Holy Father, and especially people in the media, because they're never going to do it accurately. They will always spin whatever it is to their advantage. And in some cases, they may just out and out lie. But... For some people, it is disconcerting that the Pope didn't come out to say anything, the Vatican didn't come out to say anything, and of course, a couple of days later, the President received communion while going to Mass in a church in the Archdiocese of Rome. But be that as it may, the church is not in crisis compared to what you have seen in history before, and as this podcast is called Faith, Hope, and History, I firmly believe we need to know our history, not only as a nation, but as a as a church, and I think perhaps the greatest crisis the church has ever faced was the Great Western Schism that came on the heels of the Avignon Papacy in the 13 and 1400s of our, uh, of our church's history. And today is the anniversary of a council 
an ecumenical council that in no small part solved that crisis within the church that lasted for a couple of generations, really, beginning with Pope Clement V, and, uh, who was elected in 1305, he died in 1314, who moved the papacy to Avignon in 1305. He didn't move it outright, right away, but he was one who uh, was coming in on the heels of a series of confrontations that the papal states were having with the French court. And in addition to that, he was relatively young when elected pope, but he suffered from chronic ailments, which in their acute stage made him incapacitated for dealing and resisting the French court. One thing Avignon is known for is great weather and a great climate, and Rome is not known for that. And eventually the papacy was moved because of French nationalism. Uh, a French cardinal was elected and moved the uh, the Vatican Curia, the papal Curia, to Avignon, which is France. And even though it belonged to the papal states, Avignon belonged to the papacy from 1348 to 1791. It was entirely surrounded by French territory. And so you could see the problem that would cause for the church throughout the known world at the time, throughout Christendom, that the French court would have a strong influence on the administration of the papacy. So it, the papacy didn't move to France, per se, because Avignon belonged to the papal states, but Avignon was surrounded by France and French territory. And from 1305 to 1376, the papacy was in Avignon and alienated from Rome. And that was considered a crisis at the time. Even such saints as Catherine of Siena wrote scathing letters to the Pope, encouraging him to move to Rome. Other popes from that time were uh, Pope Clement VI from 1342 to 1352, Innocent VI from 1355 to 1362, Urban V from 1362 to 1370, and finally Gregory XI from 1370 to 1378. And it was Gregory XI who moved the papacy back to Rome. But there were efforts of many people to move the papacy back to Rome. St. Catherine of Siena is known for her scathing remarks that she made to the Pope stating, your worldly court is ruining my heavenly court. Go to Rome, to your see, as soon as possible. War and want of virtue are the two causes of the church's ruin. Do not be a timid boy, be a man. Raise the standard of the Holy Cross. Take courage and come, O Babio mio. St. Bridget was another who um, encouraged the return to Rome. And eventually, Gregory XI returned the papal curia to Rome, but with the return to Rome, naturally raised the ire of the French cardinals who were influenced by the French court. And eventually, they would elect a rival pope in Avignon, an anti-pope against the pope in Rome. And so for another few decades, from 1378 to 1417, there would be what was called the Great Western Schism, in which we had two popes who were rivals for the leadership of the church, one in Rome and one in Avignon. And it wasn't until the Council of Constance in 1414 that the 
the situation, the crisis would be solved. But not before, not before we saw the synod in Pisa, which met from March 25th to August 9th in 1409. And basically Pisa declared, deposed the two popes, the Pope in Rome and the Pope in Avignon, and elected their own Pope, Pope John, I believe, the 23rd, who would eventually be replaced by John the 23rd in the 1960s, who opened the Second Vatican Council. But basically, neither of the two Popes recognized the act of deposing them, and of course, the third Pope had no problem being appointed, and so the council really had made three popes instead of two. And so for a few years, you had three popes. So let me just put something in perspective here. Many people will say that there are two popes right now. We have Pope Benedict, the Pope Emeritus, and Pope Francis. It's not the same thing. We don't have an anti-pope in Pope Francis because Pope Benedict is not trying to continue his leadership in the church. He was not deposed. He retired. He resigned. And while he does not lose that status of being pope, he is Pope Emeritus. Just like in any diocese, the ordinary may retire and he may live while his successor is leading the diocese. Right across the bay from where I am, in the Diocese of Oakland, Bishop Cummins, Bishop John Cummins, who right now is very, very sick, has lived in retirement to see three successors. Three successors. He hasn't outlived them, but Bishop Vinrion replaced him first and then became Archbishop of Detroit. Bishop Salvatore Godelione replaced him, and eventually became Archbishop of San Francisco, and now Bishop Michael Barber is the current Bishop of Oakland. And Bishop Cummins, in retirement, has seen three of his successors, has lived to see three of his successors, and he's not claiming to be the Bishop of Oakland, nor is anyone else claiming that he's still the real Bishop of Oakland. Time was when a bishop remained Bishop of their diocese until they died. But under the papacy of Pope Paul VI, the church began to require the retirement of bishops at age 75, and they would retire from their diocese if they were the ordinary, if they were the leader of a diocese, they would retire from their diocese at age 75. The only bishop in which that is not the case is the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And him being the head of the church, it's basically his call whether or not he wants to retire or remain until death. Pope Benedict opted to retire. He recognized his shortcomings. He recognized he was getting too old, and he opted to retire, and he gave his resignation. He was older than 75, just as Pope Francis is now older than 75. Both of them are older than 80. But ultimately, it's the Pope's decision, being the head of the church, the highest authority here on earth in the church. Christ is the highest authority of the church, but the Pope is the highest authority here on earth. Pope Francis may yet decide to retire, but Pope Benedict retired. There is not a situation in the church in which there are two popes, but there was a time in the church in which there were three, and it wasn't because two had retired. It's because all three 
laid claim to the leadership of the church. After the papacy returned from Avignon to Rome in 1376, the French cardinals elected their own pope in 1378, and from 1378 to 1417, there were multiple popes trying to push their influences as leader of the church. And in 1409, the Council of Pisa, while trying to solve the problem, only resulted in three popes instead of two. But on this day, in 1414, the Council of Constance opened. And it was the Council of Constance that succeeded in healing what was called the Great Western Schism. Both popes agreed to retire and step down. And Pope Martin V was elected to replace them. Now, granted, that third pope, John XXIII, he refused to step down. But when we're dealing with a council as distinct from a synod, there is a difference when it comes to the authority within the church. A synod is a meeting of some of the bishops. A council, at least in theory, if not in practice, is a meeting of all the bishops. A handful of bishops, not all the bishops, but a few of them, in the Synod of Pisa, deposed the two popes, and, and the Synod didn't have the kind of authority that a council has. In the case of a council, basically, yeah, the pope is the highest authority in the church, but what is the pope without the support of his bishops? Because remember, Jesus founded the church on Peter, but he also founded it on the apostles. And Peter is the unifying head of the apostles. The Pope succeeds Peter, and he's the unifying head of the bishops throughout the world. But if the bishops don't back him, what good is he? And we are not a papal church. We are an apostolic church. The authority rests on the apostolic authority and the apostolic succession, not just of one man, but of 12 plus apostles and now hundreds and hundreds of bishops. So in the case of the Council of Constance, you had more bishops declaring the solution to this crisis, deposing the three rival popes and electing Pope Martin V on March 12, 1418. The Avignon and Roman popes stepped down, but the third pope elected in Pisa did not. Well, the bishops basically, okay, you go and you play pope somewhere, we have chosen Martin V. The Council of Constance, which lasted from 1414 to 1418, eventually healed the rift and solved the crisis of the Great Western Schism. And so, as people nowadays will say, there is a great crisis in the church. We have two popes, or there is no leadership in the church. I think in many ways we need to cut the melodrama. If you know the history of the church... And this podcast is called Faith, Hope, and History. The church has been through worse and has come out of it. The church has a very checkered history. And a lot of anti-Catholics love to point out the bad parts of our church's history. But there are also many triumphant parts of our church's history. And it is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised that has enabled that to occur. And I remember when I first learned of the Great Western Schism, especially the Synod of Pisa, which ended that lecture for that day, in which the professor who always ends his lecture with a glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, in the end of his lecture, 
he quotes that point that instead of solving a problem, all the Synod of Pisa has done is bring forth a third pope where before we had two. And then he ended his lecture by saying, and we can now rest in the consolation that things have gotten so bad for the church that we have nowhere to go but up. And then went into his prayer for the end of the day. But at the same time, when you think about it, when was this? The height of this crisis was in the Synod of Pisa in 1409. We had the Avignon Papacy for 70 years. Then we had the Great Western Schism for another few decades, from 1378 to 1417, and the height of which was the election of a third rival pope. This was at a time in which we did not have mass media, This is at a time that was barely before the printing press. We didn't have television, radio, heck, we didn't even have telegrams, let alone cable news and multiple 24-hour news outlets. All this crisis was on the administrative level of the church, and no doubt people were aware of it. And there were kings throughout in dealing with the papacy, dealt with the papacy in Avignon. But people were not sitting at home stewing over a crisis in the church. Maybe the bishops were concerned about it, but do you think the average priest working in the churches, working in the parishes, working out in the trenches, do you think the average Catholic trying to live as good a life as they can, assuming they even cared, were concerned or even knowledgeable of what was going on in the papacy? Yes, you had certain individuals like St. Bridget and St. Catherine of Siena. But the average Catholic may have been aware that the papacy had moved to Avignon, but it really didn't affect their lives all that much. It really didn't affect their faith all that much. They continued to receive the sacraments. They continued to receive communion. They continued to celebrate the Mass. The priests continued their work. Life went on. The church went on. And eventually, the crisis was solved, and people went on. Today, with mass media, mass communication, social networking, we hear so many things going around that there are some people, some Catholics, all they have to live for is being upset about something. And I let people know, granted, yes, it is important who the Holy Father is. It's important who my bishop is. But the Holy Father has very little to do with the work that I do as a priest in the parish. Getting the message out, preaching, teaching, helping people's faith to remain strong and firm. Someday, this Pope will either step down or die, and he will be replaced by someone else. Will he be liberal? Will he be conservative? Who knows? Who cares? The deposit of faith will remain the same. In the case of the Great Western Schism, One of the questions of church administration was a very important one. Which has the most authority in the church? The Pope or an ecumenical council? Both of them hold the charism of infallibility as Vatican I defined it. But just as the Council of Constance deposed three popes and elected Martin V, Martin V eventually nullified some of the resolutions of the Council of Constance in the aftermath of the council and during the administration of his his papacy. But these are issues that history has grappled with and will continue to grapple with. But as Catholics, 
it really doesn't affect us all that much if we are strong in faith. Do we need to approve of it? No. Should we be bothered by it? Somewhat. But do we really have the authority to declare the church null and void simply because we perceive a crisis? The answer is no. Whenever a person comes to me and says, well, Pope Francis is an anti-pope, and he's a false pope, and he's Satan's pope, I simply look at them and remind them, look, I don't have the authority to make that declaration, and frankly, neither do you. I just continue to do the work as best I can, and I leave the crisis that we perceive as people down in the trenches, working on the front lines, I leave the crises to be solved by the administration of the church, the bishops, and the pope. It's not my problem with regard to how Catholic our president or our speaker of the house or other politicians are. Do I approve of them? Certainly not. But in the end, I need to be concerned about how well I live this faith and encouraging those I serve to live it as well. If anything, we can hold our leaders to a bad example for the people rather than a crisis for the church. And perhaps history will look back on Pope Francis as a good pope, a great pope, or a bad pope, or the worst pope. And for all we know, they may say the same things about Pope Benedict. And frankly, it's a little soon to make a judgment of history with regard to Pope St. John Paul II. He's been canonized a saint, but it'll take a while before history really assesses his papacy. But for us in the trenches, for us on the front lines, for us who do the job of working hard to live that faith. Let's be focused on that. Yes, let's be knowledgeable of what's going on in the leadership of the church, but let's not be overly disheartened as to allow ourselves to fall into the frenzy of a notion that the church is in crisis or the church is coming to an end or that we have an anti-pope. And if we have a president who claims to be Catholic, but is an advocate of a horrendous practice that the Catholic Church roundly condemns and yet still goes to communion? Yes, we're not called to approve of that. We're not called to be happy about it. But if anything, we can use it as an example to how not be as a Catholic. If there are bishops who are not calling them to task, we can use it as an example of how not to be as a leader of the Church. And if we think we can do a lot better, okay, let's get in line and hope the Pope eventually appoints us bishops. What do you think the odds of that are going to be? Ultimately, we have to leave it in the hands of God and in the hands of a wisdom of a collective of our leadership, our apostolic leaders in this country and throughout the world. Because it was in many ways a stroke of genius that Jesus did not establish this church on one man, but on a collective, a college, under the leadership of that one man, Peter. But we are not one holy Catholic and papal church. We are not one holy Catholic and Petrine church. We are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And while we may have a pope, and we have had popes, whose leadership has not necessarily been the best, in some cases out and out corrupt, the church has survived because while the pope is the leader, the pope is not the be-all, end-all of the church. Christ is. And the Pope, while the unifying head of the church, is not the only apostolic leader. We have a collective of now a couple thousand bishops throughout the world. And while some of them may be weak in the face of Catholic leaders who don't practice that Catholic faith as they should, 
We also have others who do stand up and hold these leaders as bad examples. Let's just also hope that they hold certain leaders as good examples because we can't just hear the bad examples as Catholics with regard to our fellow Catholics in political position or bishops who don't do their job. We need to hear the good examples. We need to hear of those who are doing it right. But most importantly, we need to make sure that we are doing it right. And while we have had multiple crises within the church, and some would perceive now as a crisis, again, like I said, I don't have the authority to make any kind of judgments on Pope Francis or the legitimacy of the retirement of Pope Benedict, and neither do most of the people who come to talk to me about it. They don't ask me, they just declare. But if we're going to have any kind of perspective we need to know the history of the church. And if we can make it through a crisis like the Great Western Schism, in which we had not two popes, but at one point three popes, all claiming legitimacy, we can make it through anything. And so Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. Christ is calling the shots here. And the church will survive whatever crisis, perceived or otherwise, the church will make it through. Because it always has, and it always will. So, know your history. Look up the Great Western Schism. I've obviously just gone over the, the, the surface of what was involved in the Avignon Papacy and the Great Western Schism. There is, of course, a lot more to the history a lot more than could be gotten into in just a, a, a podcast such as this. But know your history, strengthen your faith, and you'll eventually have that hope that we need in the church, in the faith we profess, and in the promise that Christ gave that he would always be with the church to guide it. And that's why I call this podcast Faith, Hope, and History. Because when we know the history, we'll have greater hope and stronger faith. So hang in, don't be too discouraged, and don't let others discourage you. Keep the faith, know your history, and we'll all move forward so that our faith may never fail and we can go forth doing the best we can to live that faith as Christ calls us to live it in imitation to those of our leaders who are good examples and despite the bad examples that we see. So thanks for listening, and with any luck, I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.